Glad to be here again this morning as, uh, as Tim is in Brazil and Alan was out. Uh, he is here this morning, but I get the pleasure of being here again with the adults. And I told Alan, so if you make a habit out of this, might be looking for a new youth pastor. I might like it over here a little bit. So, but I do love coming over here. I do love speaking, you know, second Sunday in a row that I've got to come and share with you guys. And, you know, sorry again, the video is a little fuzzy. I filmed both last week and this week at the same time because I knew I was going to be out this past week. I had the extreme pleasure of going up into the Colorado mountains and spending some time there, uh, do some skiing, uh, some hiking and some things like that. It was just a blast. But I'll tell you, it's, it's been a while since I've been around mountains in, in the wintertime and driving up to them, you know, when you start getting, getting in eyesight and they're on the horizon, man, like, so cool. They're so big, you know. I mean, they're done. You know, they're mountains, right? But yeah, when you're driving up, it's just the majesty of them. What God's created is just so cool. Being able to see and watch uh, this terrain that God has put together. And even when you get close to it, like you're looking at it, and it's just huge, right? You can't take it all in in, in one viewing, but it was really cool. Uh, there was a little bit of a blizzard that blew through early uh, Wednesday, uh, Tuesday night going into Wednesday. And I was a little worried because it was supposed to be dropping like 12 inches of snow on us. Um, and I asked Tyler, I said, Tyler Rankin, who went with me, he said, man, we're, we're going to be able to get out, right? And uh, he said, I hope so. He's <laughs> like, dude, you got to realize, like, you know, if I don't get back to preach, this may be my last vacation, like, you know, so we got to get through here. And luckily we did, uh, Colorado had plows and salt going everywhere. So we were able to get out Thursday, uh, ski a little bit and then drive home, get back Friday morning. But I'm glad to be back, uh, back where you can walk outside and like your tear doesn't freeze to your face, you know, as it was eight degrees Wednesday and Thursday, but it was awesome. It was a blast. Again, seeing the mountains, the majesty of them. But I'm glad to be back here. I'm glad to be here with you guys this morning. Before we get into the work, I'd ask that you join me as we dedicate this time to God. Please, let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this morning, and I thank you for the, uh, the ability to be here, God, to gather, uh, to discuss your word, Lord, to gather as a, as a church family, Father. Lord, I just pray that, that these next few moments, God, that we just block out the distractions, we block out anything else uh, that may be pulling our attention, and we focus solely on what you have for us this morning, not what I have, but what you have, God, in your scripture. So God, I pray you empty me at this moment, Father, and fill me with your word, Lord, that I may be your vessel, Father. And I thank you. Thank you for all that you've done for us, God. You are good. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. So last week, again, we had kind of an unorthodox sermon on social media and digital technology, right? Kind of a weird thing to talk about on a Sunday morning. But again, it was something that we were talking about as we're moving forward in our culture today uh, towards this kind of digital Babylon, if you will, where you're not going to really be able to, to live and function in this world without being somehow uh, involved with technology, right? And how we interact with that as Christians as we move forward. And I want to kind of continue on that note a little bit as we discuss our world and where we're going as a culture, as a society, right, as a people, uh, even as a church. And so I want to kind of coattail on last week and just kind of discuss where we're headed in the future. You see, um, last week, though, I was, I was made aware that I didn't even have all the information that the Old Testament had to say about 
social media and technology. There was actually more. I thought it was really cool. Uh, Sal, who teaches our eight o'clock Bible study over in the student center, um, you know, he's a seminary professor, and he shared some very deep uh, theological thoughts with me as we were talking about technology and social media and that. So I want to share that with y'all. If y'all take a look at the screen here. I mean, it's not me, it's God. He's the one that's instigating all this technology, right? Uh, No, I thought that was really cool. I thought that was kind of funny, you know, Moses being the first guy downloading files from the cloud uh, onto a tablet. So, um, you know, Old Testament has a lot. This goes to show, though, no matter what age we're in, no matter what's going on, the Bible always has something uh, both enlightening and very... um, prophetic and some wisdom in it, right? And it can make us laugh at times too. And so today though, as I was looking through and thinking about, you know, where we're going as a culture, this post-truth culture, uh, where truth is relative, your truth may not be my truth, my truth may not be your truth, and that's fine, that's how we live because we don't want to offend anybody, right? As I think about that and I think about how so many people generation to generation are abandoning faith, abandoning the church, and turning away from religion altogether, it really, it it kind of burdens me a little bit as a youth minister. You see, the generation that is currently in my youth ministry or in the youth ministry of Champion Fellowship, doing some research, come to find out that over half of, that there is actually, I'm sorry, a doubling, there's a doubling in the amount of teens, uh, Generation Z, if you will, ages like 13 to 20 right now, that claim to be atheists. There is a doubling. It's the biggest increase generation to generation uh, that Barna and Pew and these people who do this research have seen in a long time. And even in those that claim to be Christians, there is a decrease every generation, and it seems to be exponentially decreasing. In fact, when you, when you look at uh, the greatest generation to the elders generation, there is, I think, about a 3% drop in those that claim to be evangelical Christians. From the elders' generation to Generation X, uh, there was around like a 6 to 8% drop. And Gen X to Millennials, uh, there was like a 12 to 15% drop. And then with the Millennials to Generation Z, there was an even greater drop in the, 20 per, in the 20-something percentage. And so we're seeing people abandon faith and walk away from it generation to generation to generation. And as a youth pastor, that burdens me because... My, my job, what God has called me to do is to help the new generation that's coming up to realize what God has done for them, who God is, and teach them what God says in his scripture. But when I see the statistics, it's like, man, I'm, I'm fighting an uphill battle, you know? Uh, and I'd, you know, I'd be remiss to say that there are times that I wonder, like, is there any winning, Right? But as with any topic, with any struggle, with anything that we deal with, we can often go to Scripture or ask God to lead us somewhere. So I was like, God, what do we do? Where in your Scripture can I go to see uh, either where this has been handled in the past or how to handle it in the future? God, show me something. And what's so funny is uh, through that little photo that we showed, you know, I realized well, there's actually some stuff, again, back in the Old Testament. It's really weird for a youth minister to be preaching out of the Old Testament so much. But in the Old Testament, we go and we can see this fluctuation in the Israelites. As you know, when Moses led his people out of Egypt, there was this 
up, down, back and forth about serving God, not serving God, right? And there was always this time in the Israelite history where the Israelites would do evil on the side of God, right? God would raise somebody up and deliver them from it. And then they go back to worshiping God. And then the guy that brought them out of it would die and they go right back to doing evil again, right? Rinse, wash, repeat. All the way through the Old Testament, right? And so as we see this, I started looking at, okay, Again, God is the God of wisdom. God is the God of, he doesn't just say to his people, good luck, right? Like he gives us something. He gives the people something to go off of. And so I started looking through and I'm like, all right, God, where did you talk to us about how to break this cycle? Where did you tell us how we do things differently, right? And I came to Deuteronomy. And don't worry, if you were here last week, we were in three books, I willowed it down to two this week. So um, try to make it a little easier, all right? So we're in Deuteronomy chapter six, and I wanna share this with you. For many of you, as soon as I said Deuteronomy chapter six, you probably knew exactly where I was going, and you knew some of the verses that I'm probably gonna be quoting this morning. But the more that I've studied scripture and the more that I've gotten into understanding scripture, the more that I've realized is that the Bible is not a Bible of verses. The Bible is a Bible telling a story of the past and the future and what's coming. It flows from beginning to end, and there's always something that sheds light on the verses that we're reading and that we're quoting so often, right? Last week, we talked about Jeremiah 29, 11, which many of you here, you know, you've heard that quoted, right? Especially on Senior Sunday. But there's more to it than that, right? As we discussed. And so today, I want to read from Deuteronomy here in chapter 6, and I'm going to read verses 4 through 12, but I want to stop a moment in the middle, and I'll tell you why here in just a moment. So let's, let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Sounding pretty familiar, right? These commandments that I give you today are to be on your heart. And if you're a parent, you've heard these next few verses a lot. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Right? As parents, we've heard that a lot. We've heard that so many times because, again, that's what we're supposed to do as Christian parents, Right? But again, this isn't just something that's like, just do this. Because what happens when you tell a kid, do this? Why? Yes, thank you. Why? Why should I do this? Right? And if, if the Bible is a, is a Bible of just verses, and we just know that verse, we're like, because the Bible says so, right? What's the point? Exactly. God always gives us a why. Let's look at this in verse 10 through 12 here. Starting in verse 10, chapter 6 of Deuteronomy. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You see, guys, Moses was sharing with the Israelite people as they're in the wilderness. He's just spoken with God. He's received these commandments. He's received these laws. And he's saying, look, there's coming a point. We are going into a land flowing of milk and honey, right? It's gonna be awesome. But when we get there, 
don't forget about God. Don't forget what he's done. Because let me ask you guys a question real quick. When is, when is it ordinary or when is it typically um, that we open scripture and we pray? Trouble. When we're dealing with trouble, when we're dealing with adversity, when somebody comes to us, either we're dealing with it, so we're like, well, I gotta pray about it because I need God's help in getting through this, right? Sorry, I typically use a handheld. This thing's really weird on me. Um, when we're in trouble, when we're dealing with something, we're like, God, I need your help. God, please, I'm dealing with this. I need your help now. Or when we have somebody come to us, say, Neil, Tim, Alan, I'm struggling. I need help, right? I need, I need scripture. I need prayer, right? And I'm guilty of the same thing. You know, we often ask uh, in staffing, it's like, we have anything to pray about? And I often forget to mention, hey, you know, we forget to do the, the prayers of thanksgiving, right? Because we're so used to our God being a God of, of trouble, right? And so when things are going good, when things are going well, you know, we catch ourselves going through a period of just being, right? And not being with God. And so as Moses, as God is telling Moses and Moses is telling the people, he realizes this. He's like, you're going to be in a land that is awesome. You're going to have all this stuff that you didn't have to do anything for except fight and take the land, Right? But when you're there, don't forget about God, right? Don't forget about God. And here's the deal. Here's the deal, what he's telling them. Many of you won't have much time in the land, right? If you make it there at all. So make sure that you are impressing this stuff upon your children because they are gonna be the ones that God is gonna be watching. And y'all have seen what happens when we mess it up. We get punished for it. Don't let your children go without knowing this stuff because we don't want them to suffer the same fate, right? And so this younger generation that's under Moses, they are beginning to see as the Israelites are wandering through the wilderness, they're seeing the punishment that came from distrust and disobedience in God. Because as we walk through this story, we see where they get to the promised land. I mean, it's like right there. Like, that's it, yep, right there. Cross this river. What river is it, Jordan? Yep, it's right there. Let's send some people over. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's send 12 spies. 12 spies go into the land. We know the story. What happens? They come back. 10 of them are like, dude, these people are big. I don't think we can take them. I don't think we can, we can take this land, right? And you've got two that are like, uh, God, right? Like, we got this. You see, the problem was that the people forgot what had happened not too long ago when they came out of Egypt. You see, I can, I can imagine being an Israelite in the Egyptian slavery, right? Like, they're putting you to work and everything. Can you imagine, like, if, if you were an Israelite and God whispers to you, you're like, hey, guess what? I'm bringing this dude. His name's Moses, and he's gonna take y'all out of here. And you wake up, and you're like, sweet, awesome, Oh man, I, I can imagine what Moses is gonna be like. He's gonna be this big guy. He's gonna come in here and slay the Pharaoh and take the Israelites out of Egypt. No. Oh, okay, well, well, he's gonna be, you know, this gifted speaker who's gonna come in and rally the troops and we're gonna fight our way out of here. No. Okay, God, well, what's he gonna do? Like, make 
a snake or something? Maybe. But he's going to lead you out of here. And you're going to walk out without a fight. What? Better yet, while you're walking out, all these people that put you in slavery, I'm going to make them give you gifts. Is this really God? Like, you know... But that's how God does things. Can you imagine being an Israelite walking out of Egypt, nothing in your hands, and then this Egyptian walks up and says, I want you to have this. Dude, you whipped me two days ago. Like, what's going on, right? That's God. That's God. That's what he does. Because God, what he does is when he brings us out of something, he does it in a way that when you come to the other side of it, you can't take credit. All you can do is say, that's God, right? And they experienced that. And yet here they were standing, looking at the land, saying, we can't do it. The struggle's too big. And so God tells them, all right, because of your distrust, because of your, your unbelief, this generation, you're all gonna drop. Everybody over this age, you're gone. I'm gonna take in the new generation. Can you imagine being in that younger generation, wandering around for 40 years, watching people dropping because they didn't trust God? Can you imagine the life lesson learned there as you were growing up watching and just waiting for your parents to drop so you can take God's promise? Can you imagine the parents as they're laying there dying, son, don't make the same mistake. So as we, as we look at this, uh, I started realizing like, as a parent, I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. I've messed up a lot. But I started questioning, have I done my due diligence and talking to my kids about it? Now granted, they're not old enough to understand all the mistakes that I've had, but I'll tell you a story Several months ago, I was doing some schoolwork for Liberty University, taking classes online, and I started looking through the ages of which children hit milestones uh, within Israelite culture, within their, the way that they raise their kids. You know, at five years old, they have to have like this memorized. And I'm like, my kid can't even hardly memorize the alphabet. Like, come on, you know. But as they get older, they have to have more and more. And I realized that there comes a point where they're held accountable and we hear about this age of accountability. And while in, in, in Hebrew and Israelite culture, there was an age where they were held accountable as an adult, right? God's never specific on, okay, at this age, people are held accountable for their choices and they are held accountable for their choice to go with Christ or to not. And as I began reading through that and Googling and searching, I started, what is the age of accountability? Is it, is it five? Is it 13? Is it seven? I can't, I don't know. And I, I asked some friends, I was like, that were, you know, kind of know-it-alls. I'm like, well, what do you think? Bible's not clear. And I started freaking out. I, I literally, my chest got tight. My throat went dry. Because I started thinking, I was like, what happens if we're driving down the road and God decides, hey, the Krebs family's done here on this earth. And my entire family's wiped out. And I get to heaven and I see my wife, and I see my youngest, Connor, and Vincent. God, where's Dominic? 
sorry, Neil. He was accountable. No, 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 no. He was, he was only five, God, but he knew. No, God, God, there was still time. Like there was still time to let him go to kids' church and sing the songs and, and learn about this, God. There was plenty of time. He hadn't, he hadn't made it over to the big kids' church yet. Neil, it doesn't matter. He was accountable. And this thought of this playing out burned inside of me. I remember picking up my phone and I called Debbie and I'm like, Debbie, I'm freaking out right now. My son has not made a profession for Christ and I don't know when the age of accountability is and if it's five years old, he needs to know today. Debbie, I want to go to the school right now and pull him out of class just so I can tell him about Jesus and what Jesus has done for him so that he knows. Debbie, I haven't told him enough. I have to tell him. I have to tell him. And after talking for a little bit and talking through like how do you explain to a a five-year-old or a six-year-old the gravity of, of what decision we're making. Uh, she gave me a book called uh, The Love Bridge. It's a great children's book that walks through what God did in very um, simple terms, illustrations, but it walks through how we're sinners. We can't do anything about it. And how Christ came because he loved us and he took the pieces of, of our broken souls and he made a way for them to be put back together. He built a bridge for us to be able to reach God through him. And I remember that night sitting my boys down at the table and reading this to them. Now, Connor and Vincent, couldn't hardly get him to sit through the whole thing, but I could tell Dominic was intent about listening because he had heard this and heard some of this uh, in kids' church and even being in here on some Sunday mornings. But as, as I finished, I asked my wife, I said, hey, can you take the younger two, go take them a bath, get them ready for bed? Sure. I sat there with Dominic. I just started asking him questions. I said, buddy, so do, you, do you realize how big a deal this is, that, that Jesus would die for us? I said, buddy, do you, do you realize that, that without Jesus, like, we can't be saved? said, only, only by realizing that Jesus is our Lord and, and proclaiming him as Lord and repenting of our sin that we can be saved. I said, yeah. Buddy, have you, ever, have you ever asked Jesus to forgive you of your sin and asked him into your heart? Mm-mm. I said, buddy, you want to do that now? I do, Dad. And right there, a six-year-old child prayed and asked for forgiveness and, to, and for Jesus to come and save him. And my heart rejoiced. Oh, I can't, I can't tell you the joy of that. Many of you parents have experienced the same thing with your kids, uh, whether they're younger or older. But wow. But I sat there and I thought, I was like, why have I not been talking about this more? Why have I not, as a pastor, been more intentional about making sure that I'm impressing this stuff upon my children and talking to them. Now, I, I won't lie, I did struggle with, can a six-year-old really make this decision? Can, can he, does he really understand? But then I realized at 20, at 40, 60 or 80 years old, do any of us ever fully understand the commitment that we're making when we make the decision? 
It's not about knowing everything there is to know about the commitment. It's knowing that regardless of the commitment, I'm going to move forward in Christ. And what's so cool is I'm seeing that play out in my son's life now. But it took people pouring into him back there and then here and then being intentional as a parent, talking to him about how important it is to know who God is. Because I'll tell you this, Barna and Pew, the research companies that I keep referencing, they've, they've asked these questions. They've asked, you know, okay, as a Christian, what do you believe? What do you not believe? What's so, what was so interesting, excuse me, what's so interesting is that when they ask, are you a Christian, there's a lot of people that said yes. They said, are you an, are you an evangelical Christian? I think so. I said, well, let's back it up a little bit. Let's back up to that Christian. Let me define this for you. Do you believe that there is one and only God who is all-powerful, who created everything, and then when the world was broken, sent his son to die so that we may have forgiveness of sin through his son, Jesus Christ, and that through his ministry and through time, God has inspired people and has written the Bible and has protected the Bible, and the Bible is the inspired, inherent word of God that is without fallacy. Do you believe that? Eh. I mean, I believe the Jesus thing. I don't know about the Bible. Or, well, yeah, I believe in God, but I don't know that he's the only God. It's sad that in our culture today, we have to define what a Christian is and that the definition of a Christian is so skewed. And I think it's because we've, we've allowed so much to come in and just pollute and corrupt it. In fact, on top of that, uh, we start putting other things ahead of that. I'll share this with you. 1993. 1993, around 500 Christian adults, people who agreed with that statement, around 500 Christian adults were asked, if you had the opportunity to share your faith with a friend, but sharing your faith would put that friendship in jeopardy, would you share with them? In 1993, 60% of respondents said, yes, I would still share. Now, that's not 100%. We hope for 100%, but 60%, 6 out of 10. That's still pretty good, right? 1993. Around 700 adults who agreed with that statement about being a Christian and believing, you know, Bible's true, God is God, Jesus did what he did. 2017, asked the same question. If you had the opportunity to share with a friend, but sharing your faith with that friend would jeopardize your friendship, would you do it? 23%. Twenty-three percent said they would, and even a, a large number said, "Well, I don't know, you know, which friend, right? You know," and a bunch of them said, "No, I don't want to offend anybody." They didn't want to lose the friendship, but they were willing to lose the soul. Because the friendship on this side of death was more important than the eternity they could have had if that friend heard and accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. We're living in a society now where even Christians will agree that sharing faith is not acceptable. That it is offensive. And you should only share if you're asked. 
Guys, if we believe what we believe, if we claim that the Bible is real and we know the outcome, that you're either going to heaven or you're going to hell, you're either going to spend eternity with Christ or an eternity separated from Christ, if we truly believe that, how can we not share? But the problem is, again, as, as culture shifts away from this, is because more and more are accepting the idea that sharing Christ is not acceptable that talking about Christ, that living for Christ out loud is not acceptable. Again, we can go back to the Old Testament here and see exactly what happens when we accept that mindset. If you will, turn over to Judges with me real quick. Judges is, is kind of a hard book to read through, especially if you're the type where you're kind of like, uh, this just happened and you're about to do it again. What in the world's going on, right? If you read through Judges, it's basically the whole wash, rinse, repeat storyline. People mess up, God brings somebody in, they save them, they die, go back to square one, right? In fact, just in, in chapter three alone, like it's funny because I think the author got tired of writing the story over and over again. And so there's three different instances where it says, basically the people did evil in the sight of God. This is who God brought up. He saved them, and then they died after 40 years, and they went back to doing evil again. In fact, I think he got so tired of it, um, in, in Judges chapter 3, verse 31, uh, Shamgar, he gets like one verse, right? After all these other people go through the cycle, the author's kind of like, yeah, after Ehud came Shamgar, son of Ammoth, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goat, he too saved Israel. Like, it's like, <laughs> there it is, you know, I'm tired of rewriting this story over and over and over and over again. But again, this all started somewhere. You see, Moses, again, he told him, he said, when you get into the land, don't forget about God, right? We just read through that. And then if you go back to chapter 34 of Deuteronomy, you don't have to flip there. I'm just going to just reference it real quick. In chapter 34, it talks about Moses, right, after he died. And it says that no one since that time has come like Moses who knew God face to face. Moses was considered like the greatest, right? He knew God face to face. But as we all know, Moses did not know the feeling of the promised land underfoot because of a moment of weakness where God said, speak to the rock and I shall give you water. Moses took his staff and God was still faithful. He still provided water, but he said, Moses, you failed in the sight of Israel. You have failed me in front of my people. Therefore, I cannot allow you to go into the promised land. And again, that younger generation watching and like, Moses, wow, dude's a man of God. And then can you imagine whenever Moses said, guys, I'm not going to go into the promised land. What? I messed up. And so God is keeping me from entering the promised land. Can you imagine a young person hearing that and watching that and thinking, if Moses messed up and couldn't go into the promised land, what hope do I have? I really better keep it together, Right? And so as they go in, Joshua takes over after Moses dies. They cross the Jordan, and God tells them, when you go in here, you kick everybody out, tear everything down. Do not leave a remnant of the old gods of the people that live here. Get everybody out. Nobody stays. This is my people's land. And so we start reading through, through, Judges and jo or through Joshua, and we start seeing that some of the tribes don't fulfill that. They allow some people to stay. They allow some of the altars to remain. And an angel of the Lord ends up coming to them in Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. 
the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bolkim and said, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give to you and your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I also have said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you and their gods will become snares to you. When the angel of the Lord has spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud and they called that place Bochim. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. So not only had they messed up, but now an angel has come to them and said, listen, you didn't do what God asked you to do. You're gonna receive punishment for it now. And they wept. Can you imagine because they've seen what happens when you disobey God. And now, here, they've disobeyed God again, and an angel has said, you're gonna suffer the punishment for this. <sighs> but they knew that punishment could be heaped on top of that, so they're like, we better get our act together. So they worship God, they offer sacrifices, and they said, please, God, forgive us. Allow us to suffer this punishment and move forward, right? And so they end up dispersing to their land, and that's where we pick up in chapter, uh, verse six, chapter two, verse six. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at timnath Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. You see, as long as Joshua and the elders were alive, that had seen what God had done, they knew we were gonna worship God, we were gonna follow God, we're not gonna go against them anymore because we don't want any more punishment. And kids, be, go play. We are gonna worship, guys, get out of here. Come on, worshiping God here. Oh God, we don't want any more punishment. Why was I doing that? I think the reason I feel like that is kind of the direction they went, let's read this next verse here, verse 10. After that whole generation had gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. What? Knew neither the Lord or what he had done for these people. If you've ever played the game telephone and you get that one person in the middle that just refuses to play, right? The message doesn't go on, but it's because a choice is made not to deliver the message. And guys, right here, we see where the Israelites, they were delivered out of Egypt. They just took land from people who were bigger than them by God's hand. They were in the wilderness, foods coming down from heaven, right? And yet this, whole, this generation comes up that has no idea who God is or what he had done for Israel. Why did they not know? Why were they not told? I mean, the Israelites had just experienced this incredible journey of God just boom, boom, delivering them one after the other and delivering this land to them and delivering them out of Egypt. Like this was not a God that just resided within the four walls of a building that we came and visited once on Sunday morning. This was a God that led by a pillar of fire and smoke. This was a very present God. This was a wow God. And yet an entire generation 
arose that knew neither the Lord or what he had done for Israel. Guys, that is, that's terrifying. That's terrifying. You see, I think part of the problem was they got it easy and they kicked back. And yes, they lived by God's laws and his statutes, but they did it when they needed to and then they enjoyed their easy life when the law was fulfilled or when it, whenever they had done their obligation. They didn't take the time to sit there and tell, hey, kids, gather around. I gotta tell you how great this God is that we're worshiping. Let me tell you what he's done for us that we have seen with our own eyes. You see, unfortunately, I think a lot of this happens in our current society as well. You see, as we, as we live our lives, as it becomes more culturally unacceptable to live out a faith for Christ, as it becomes more inappropriate to share who God is and share about faith in Christ, we tend to back off a little bit. And as we back off, what happens is this mountain of a faith we don't lose our faith. It's just the mountain turns into an iceberg until only about 10% of our faith is visible above the surface. Again, you still got all the faith down here. It's not visible. And as a kid, I'm not gonna attest to this, my kids will, will mimic me and they'll do what I do, right? We've all heard the saying, typically in a negative sense, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Well, that can go both ways, right? So here's the deal. If the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, and yet the tree that they're looking at or the structure they're looking at is just the tip of an iceberg in this surface-level society that we live in, and they say, that's what faith looks like, that's what I need to mimic, why are we questioning why their faith is so shallow and they're turning away from it? Because if 10% of the mass of an iceberg or 10% of our faith is put on display daily, it's no wonder that when people look at it, they say, it's nothing. I don't even need to do that to be a good person. But if we take the stance and we say, I'm not gonna hide my faith and I'm not going to allow my faith to be an iceberg, I'm gonna stand like a mountain to where when you see my faith, you're gonna understand that this faith did not come to be by just some reading and some Sunday morning scripture. This faith came to be by a personal relationship with God, with Christ. And it has come to be because I have pursued it and because I've taken the journey and I'm gonna put it on display for all to see. Because just as I was driving up on those mountains and just as those were coming into view, you couldn't take it all in. Because the second that you see and you say, wow, what majesty, you round the bend and you go, wow, there's more, right? And you round another bend and go over the pass and then even more mountains. You say, wow, how incredible. This would take forever to understand the magnitude of these mountains in the same way it's going to take a long time for a new generation to understand the magnitude of God. It's not going to happen by just a few Sunday mornings and a few Wednesday nights. It's not going to happen by just having a conversation one or two times. I'll tell you right now, if I had that conversation with my son, that was the last conversation of faith that I had, do you think he is going to turn away from God or do you think he's going to continue on? If I don't continue to show him the mountain of faith that God offers us if we are just willing to take that step. As an older generation, we have to make sure that we are showing the mountain to the younger generation. 
we have to make sure that we are following this. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're talking about impressing them on your children. When we sit down, when we lie down, when we get up, as symbols on our hands and the bindings on our foreheads, writing them on the door frames of our houses and your gates. Now, I'm not saying go get a Sharpie and start writing all over your house, but when you walk through your house, is it evident? When people come to your home, is it evident that you are living a life for Christ? When you have guests in your home and you, or you have children, right, and you sit down and you fill your plate and you sit down to eat, say, oh, oh hold on, guys. We need to pray first. I've been unfortunate to be caught by my kid taking a bite. Dad, oops, right? But again, it, it's because we have to set this precedent, we have to set this standard that we are gonna live out of faith in front of our kids in the next generation and we're gonna show them. The other piece is too, younger generation, everybody like you know 25 and younger in here, listen up real quick. As we were going into these mountains, I didn't see it right away. You see, as we were getting there, I realized we may lose signal, so I was trying to shoot off some text messages and some emails and things like that until Tyler was like, dude, look up, man. Wow. Dude, you see the elk over there? Oh, my goodness. How do they not fall? They're like right on the edge, right? Dude, we're passing a buffalo ranch. Look how big they are. Wow. Look at the mountains up there. That's the mountain we're going to. Oh, man, I can't wait to get there. Younger generation, Look up, see the older generation, see what they've been through and see what God has done for them as a people and as a church, right? Both corporately and individually. An older generation, when the people are looking up, don't hide your faith and don't hide the mountain that you've had to trek to understand who God is. Put it on display for a generation that has enough influences to turn them in whatever way they want. We talked about that last week. They, this world that they're in, man, is sand all over the place. And it seems like the foundation of who Christ is, it seems like it's shrinking every day as the amount of sand grows around us. But let me tell you this, the foundation is not shrunken. It's just we're a little less inclined to show it to people because we don't want to offend. So today I want to challenge you all as the band gets ready to come up here in just a moment, I want to challenge you that as an older generation, live out your faith like a mountain that is undeniable and that puts on display the work that God has done in your life and the lives of those around you. Let this world see it. Let this world understand the magnitude of it so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven that they may see the mountain of faith that you were living out and they may understand that this is not something that is surface level. This thing goes deep and this thing is big. So again, as the band comes to play and to close out this time, I wanna encourage you, younger generation, look up, look up. Take a moment and look to your older generation. And trust me, I know, right? My mom was the type where like everything was biblical and religious, right? It's like, mom, I got to see on my, my math homework. Well, you know, this is what the Bible says about that. So, trust me, I know you get tired of it, right? But I'm telling you, if you don't understand who God is and what he has done for you, go start reading the rest of Judges and see what happens, because if we allow the generation to continue to raise up that doesn't know God nor know what he's done for us as a people, what Christ has done for us as a people, 
I don't want to be on the other side of that. But I'll tell you this, I'll get in the trenches with you and we'll figure it out. Older generation, will you get in the trenches with me? Will you pour into the next generation so that they know God and they know what he has done for our people? Let's pray. Father, I ask this morning, I thank you, Lord, for your scripture and for everything that you've done for us as a church, for us as a people. God, I pray that as we go into this time of response, Lord, that you will light a fire in each one of us, young and old, Lord, that we will realize that there is a wisdom to be passed down to the next generation. There is a faith like a mountain that is massive that takes time to build, Father. Lord, that we will share that with the younger generation. And as a younger generation, God, that we would look up and we would see, Lord, the wonders that you have done for the older generation, what you've brought them through, that we may learn and glean from the wisdom that you have passed down through your scripture, God. Lord, in a world that is so just scattered, Father, that truth no longer is truth. Lord, I pray that you continue to give us truth through your we may continue to share truth with each other. So God, during this time, I pray that you stir hearts.